0: Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash thehivepodcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mary-Jane Rust. An author, art therapist, and Jungian analyst, Mary-Jane also lectures and facilitates workshops on eco-psychology. Having worked in a men's prison in the 1980s and at the Women's Therapy Centre in London during the early years of feminist psychotherapy, she has developed a rich and varied understanding of how culture shapes our internal worlds. In the early 1990s, she travelled to Ladakh on the Tibetan Plateau and spent time with Helena Norberg-Hodge of ISEC, an experience that would impress upon her the seriousness of our environmental crisis joining a group of like-minded therapists exploring eco-psychological thinking, facilitation and supervision. She was mentored by John Seed and Joanna Macy, whose influence contributed to her current inquiry into our relationship between mind and body, soul and the land. In this conversation, we talk about culture, breakdown and rites of passage and how we might better understand and transform not only how we relate with ourselves, but also with the greater web of life. Mary-Jane, thank you very much for being in conversation with me today.
1: You're very welcome.
0: So I thought I would start with a question that I invite all my guests to reflect on. And this is not in the questions I sent you earlier, because I like to get a fresh take. So I wonder what you feel from your perspective might be happening in the global human psyche right now, if we take that, that frame.
1: I think actually, if I were just to sort of answer that straight off, I think there's a huge amount of confusion. Some people call it hubris I think there's a lot of panic. I also think there's a lot of denial. So, you know, putting my therapist hat on, if I were to sort of <laughs> put all humans together and see them as a, as an individual, uh, which would be pretty impossible to do because there's such variation, but I think what we're talking about really is the is thinking about the the dominant culture that is sort of sweeping around the world and what is happening in that psyche. Mm-hmm. So I think we're actually going through a kind of breakdown.
0: Mm.
1: I would call it a cultural breakdown. I mean, I need to sort of preface this by saying I'm making huge generalisations here because there's so many different things happening in different parts of the world. But from where I see it, you know, we've been living with a particular story for several hundred years at least, Uh, which has been building for more than several hundred years, Mm. about who we are as humans and our place on the earth. And the kind of nub of the story is that we are superior to the rest of life and that we're separate from the rest of life. And the rest of life are a collection of objects. Mm. They're just resources to use to accrue more human wealth. I think that's got us into this position that we're in, that story. I mean, there's a lot more that could be said about that. Uh, Lots of different angles that we could take on it. And that somehow our pleasure is derived from exciting new experiences, but also within that particularly buying stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) and creating new technologies which has become like an addiction. But there are multiple distractions which keep us from sort of stepping back and really looking at what's going on and saying, does this satisfy us, the way that we're living? Are we happy? And I think there is a growing realisation that we're not, we're really not, that capitalism isn't really working for us, the way that we're going about things. And just as the person who comes into my therapy room in great distress, saying, you know, this isn't working. And the way I think about myself and the way my place in the world, I, I, I've lost meaning. I can't find meaning, and this isn't working for me. You know, some people will break down to rock bottom and have to rebuild. Some people rebuild before they get to rock bottom. Um, And it's a million dollar question as to how far we're going to have to go down before we really address the urgent changes that are needed. Mm.
0: That's such a powerful image as well to think about the depths to which we have to descend in order to make enough change among enough people, among enough countries to be able to really transform how we choose to live and how we story our lives.
1: And and there is good news in there, which is, you know, maybe you have too, but I've been aware of this and watching this going on for several decades. And when I began, the ecological crisis wasn't really on the main agenda. And people just looked at me as if I was a bit mad going on about it, as if I was walking up and down Oxford Street with one of those clapboards on me saying <laughs> the end of the world is nigh, you know, Mary Jane, have you gone mad? Mm. Whereas now, People really have woken up to it. So you go and talk to anyone um, on the street, in my experience anyway, and they will be aware that we are in a terrible bind and that major changes must be made. And, of course, there's a great variety of opinions about how we do that and how far people are willing to, in a sense, give up, sacrifice things. And actually, I think the last year with COVID there's been a real watershed around that. Whether it will be anywhere near enough to make us substantially change, I don't know. But I think it's been another milestone in the process.
0: And I wonder from that perspective then, you, you mentioned about meaning and people having this crisis of having a lack of meaning. Where do you find meaning at the moment?
1: So I think that's a really interesting question and I think there's several layers to it because I think that the sort of... My in- initial response to that would be to say, I find meaning in making connection. So I find meaning in my relationships with friends, with colleagues, with the clients that I work with, and just as importantly, my connection with the non-human world, spending time outdoors, going to my favourite spots, maybe catching a glimpse of a fox that will be an exciting day for me if that <laughs> happens. But meaning also comes from, in a sense, the, our, our worldview and how we understand our place within it. So I've been talking really about my own framework of understanding, but as I see it, we're in a cultural breakdown. I think if I were just encased in the dominant culture view it would be totally depressing. You know, we're just on a downhill slope and goodness, let's get the technology to save ourselves. I think that's the the line in the dominant culture and some people think we'll do it and other people think we won't. From my point of view, I think breakdowns are a kind of rite of passage and they offer us an opportunity to get rid of, things that don't work anymore and find a new story and a new way of being in the world so I feel at the same time you know both excited by that and also anxious and are we going to make it through Mm -hmm. I don't think any of us know so I think it it means living with a great deal of uncertainty And how sturdy are we at being able to manage that uncertainty? We've certainly had a test in the last year, Mm. and that's continuing. So I think I find meaning from looking at how can I use my gifts at this time of breakdown? What can I do to make a contribution to the enormous shift that we're trying to make around the world and it can seem meaningless in the sense of you know I'm just this tiny grain of sand in this huge mass of of change that's needed to be made and my contribution can feel a bit like pissing in the wind <laughs> yeah. but but from another point of view actually it means a lot doesn't it it, it, it means a huge amount to me when people are coming to me in my practice, in my therapy practice, saying, I'm really distressed about what we're doing to the earth, Mary-Jane. I I, I want to come and see you as my therapist because I know you'll understand. And maybe I won't want to talk about that very much. You know, Maybe I'll just want to talk about the normal things that people talk about in therapy. But to know that you understand that, to know that you're not going to interpret my distress as about something else which some therapists might do, you know, you're you're distressed about the planet, but really you're distressed about your father dying and blah, blah, blah. So that gives me a great sense of meaning to be able to offer whatever I can do to help, to be of service to the
0: world. So I'm curious about what actually moved you towards your work as an art therapist, a union analyst, and also an eco-psychologist. It's a very rich and varied path.
1: Well, uh, as always, most people's life stories, it's a very long one, so I'll, I'll try and <laughs> be, keep it fairly brief. So there's many different threads. One thread is that I grew up in the countryside in North Norfolk, my father was a miller, mm. and so we were very much connected into the farming community. And my father had a great love of nature. And my mother was a, a real deep thinker and quite spiritual and sort of put those things together. I suppose I'm, I'm in some way, you can see how my interests have emerged out of that combination. Um, and in my teens, I think I'd already shown quite a lot of interest in how people tick really quite early on, and my dear mother called me down to watch an interview on BBC in the late 60s. <laughs> it was in a series called Face to Face, and there was an interview with C.G. Young, and uh, you can still find it on the web. It's a really great interview with a very BBC interviewer doing, asking all sorts of very silly questions. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but Jung, you know, he's, he's uh, gone to Switzerland to interview Jung in his home by the lake. Anyway, that really spoke to me, that interview, and him as a person and the way he was speaking. I can't imagine at age 13 how much I took in, but clearly it spoke to me. And a couple of years later, one of my teachers at school recommended Memories, Dreams and Reflections, which is Jung's autobiography. Mm. And I went straight down to the shop and bought it and read it in my little single bed at home. (laughs) I didn't have anyone else to talk about this stuff to. But again, the book was you know when I look back at it now it contained all the seeds Mm. of what has flowered in my life so his interest in Tibetan Buddhism his art and how he used to express himself through art that's what inspired me to become an art therapist he was interested in the paranormal so there was a whole thing about there are things that happen beyond our understanding he was growing up in a Christian family his father was a pastor Mm. But he was really not at ease. He had all sorts of questions about the Christian church. And I was in the same situation with my family. So it really helped me think about another way of understanding a spiritual life without sort of banishing Christianity, but just to understand it in a different way. But most importantly, really, in terms of what I've, uh, the interests that have flowered for me he wrote extensively about his relationship with the earth. Mm. And he completely understood, even in the early 1900s, that we were on a very serious track. (laughs) And that if we continued like this, it it was going to be disastrous. And one of the famous things he said was that we are hanging by a thread. The thread is the psyche of man. Very interesting insight. You know, so in a sense, it's not, you know, whilst we have to get on with the practical changes, actually, it's what's going on at a deep psychological, spiritual level that we must also attend to. That in fact, if we don't attend to that, um, and we just make the practical changes, we'll, we'll carry on making the same mistakes. Yeah. So after that, I, I went off to university. I then trained as an art therapist straight after that. I then, through my own issues, got drawn to the Women's Therapy Centre in North London and I got involved in the early stages of feminist psychotherapy. And that helped me to see that, to understand that it's not just the individual or the individual within the family, but the family within the culture and how much the culture, as uh, obviously within feminist psychotherapy, it's a patriarchal culture, Mm -hmm. how that impacts on and shapes the individual. And after several years of working at the Women's Therapy Centre, which was very formative and also I was working in the area of eating problems and that led to an understanding of more of an understanding about consumer culture and and addiction in general I then sort of went full circle because I was just longing to get back to some of my spiritual roots, which were not evident in feminism, I can tell you. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Through a variety of connections, I ended up visiting Ladakh on the Tibetan plateau, which started as a kind of Tibetan Buddhist pilgrimage, if you like, but led to meeting a woman called Helena Norberg Hodge, who's done some really interesting work, beginning in Ladakh, but most of her work is about think global, act local. Mm. She's written a book called Ancient Futures. And she's quite a missionary. She's got great missionary zeal. And I would say when I stayed with her in Ladakh for six weeks, I was pummeled (laughs) (laughs) well and truly. And I really got the ecological crisis big time. That was in the early 90s. And I came back here and felt a bit like a cat on hot bricks. You know, here I am, practising individual psychotherapy, doing an intensive Jungian training. And then there's all this stuff going on out in the world. Um, how on earth am I going to marry the two or find a bridge? Anyway, it was after my Jungian training that I really got involved with the field of eco-psychology And one thing led to another. And after a few years of being involved in um, a self-help group, I might say, it was a a group of other therapists all interested in eco-psychology. That, in effect, was my training. We read texts together. We ran workshops. We went on residentials with John Seed and Joanna Macy together. Mm. And uh, at the end of that, I was ready to start offering Work myself workshops, and um, I teamed up with an outdoor educator, Dave Key, and we worked in Scotland on the west coast, running groups to train people to work outdoors, mm. and so on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's uh, some kind of biopic coming, coming up. <laughs> It'd be an inspiring tale to see on the screen. So let's dig in a little bit to eco-psychology. How does that show up for you? How do you define it in in terms of the the work and the experience and the context you've just described?
1: Well, the book that I published last year was about eco-psychotherapy, and that stands on the shoulders of eco-psychology. Eco-psychology is terribly difficult to define. Ask a group of people, you will get different answers from every single person. But what I would say is that it sort of turns in two directions in one direction it's about how what's happening in the bigger picture the ecological crisis how that impacts on us personally how do i see that showing up in my therapy room in terms of eco anxiety and eco grief which we've been hearing a lot about in the last couple of years but it certainly it wasn't around at all when i when i first started On this journey, it wasn't showing up in client sessions, put it that way. Mm. So, how does that shape our internal world? It leads to all sorts of questions, obviously, way beyond eco grief and eco anxiety about child development, about how we grow up always in relationship to the other than human world. Um, There's a lot more I could say about that. And then in terms of eco-psychology turning in the other direction, how can we bring a psychological attitude to the shift that we're trying to make? Because it's not that we're short of ideas about how to make the changes. We've got hundreds, thousands of ideas, so many Genius human minds are on it now. We can make the change. Mm. What's the problem? It's a psychological problem. There's so much denial, there's so much, so much fear of change, which is inevitable. Of course, we're uh, frightened of change, even when we really want to make it. Mm. So, how can the psychotherapists, the psychologists team up with the ecologists, the activists, and, and everybody? to try and enable this shift to happen more quickly. What are the mechanisms at play?
0: And so in your book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy, what are some of the key learnings for the layperson who's listening to this that you think might be most helpful for people who are experiencing ecological grief and anxiety or who just want to find a way into this subject?
1: First of all I think probably people often come to this at the moment through eco-anxiety which I've mentioned. Eco-anxiety you know when you begin to unpack it you find a whole range of emotions. It's not just that we're anxious is it? Some people are feeling enormous grief and despair some people are feeling utterly overwhelmed. Some people are feeling huge rage with the powers um, people in power are not um, paying attention to this urgently enough so when someone comes into my room and is talking about this the first thing I want to do is help them as with any anxiety that they bring in can you name the feelings that are going on in you and then can we begin to to digest what is going on we all know that actually if we try and block the feelings out, that they'll burst out sideways in other ways. Mm. So the best thing is to try and face into it. It's painful. Let's get it out on the table. And then feelings, in a sense, begin to move. We say we we have this lovely expression when we feel moved by something. It's because the feelings are moving. They're really only painful when they're stuck or probably just in that first moment of allowing the dam to burst open if they've been stored up. Once they begin to flow, we can move with them, and then they take us into all sorts of different directions. And eventually, I think they will bring most people to wanting to take action. But it's a very... You you can't jump straight into action. You know, grief dampens everything, and the danger is it turns into a stuck depression. Rage can burn us out, etc., So, it's working with those feelings and allowing someone naturally to come to a point of looking at what they're moved by and choosing an action that they really love doing, preferably with other people. I don't think any of us can do this on our own. And it's what Joanna Macy talks about from despair to empowerment. And it's a very important, we can't jump through the despair phase. we go through the despair we come to feeling more empowered especially when we share those feelings with others so that's the that's my first point about um, digesting our feelings and recognizing that when we are living through an ecological crisis it inevitably impacts not just on our physical health but on our mental health as well Mm. going in a sense much wider and deeper than that that in a sense that's a portal isn't it and we feel these strong feelings because actually most of us love the other than human world. Mm. Mm. There's a feeling that you often hear people just saying, oh, I love nature. Mm. Of course, it's much more complicated than that because, you know, personally, I don't particularly love the slugs in my garden. <laughs> I don't particularly love COVID. COVID is part of nature. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of ways in which we're disgusted by nature and um, or we might hate certain aspects of it. Etc. So it's just as complicated as any human relationship where we have a whole variety of different feelings in relation to the other person, especially to the people that we live with. (laughs) So, eco psychotherapy would help someone deepen their relationship with the other than human world. That might involve inviting someone to find a special spot to sit in every day and just notice what happens to them inside and outside it might be going to sit with a particular tree every day and getting to know the tree as well as all the creatures who come and visit the tree and probably visit you if you sit very still i had a robin the other day i was about to have some dental surgery and i was quite anxious and i went and sat in a in one of my usual spots and this robin came and started jumping on my knees.
0: How extraordinary. But yeah, and
1: it really, it was amazing because it's never done it before. It's, I've gone back to that place many times since, hoping for the same experience. It hasn't done it since. And I think, you know, it was a wonderful piece of synchronicity that this bird came to be with me when I was quite anxious about my body. And I went home feeling really calmed. Next, thirdly, I think eco-psychotherapy helps us to explore how we might carry the other-than-human world inside us. You know, in psychotherapy, we talk about how we internalise mother, we internalise father. There's all sorts of figures in our internal world. And we hear their voices. But what about internalising rock or tree? or water, or the cosmos, all of those beings live inside us as well, I think. I think there is a, Mm. you know, that, that our internal worlds are a microcosm of the outer. But we're not, in a sense, brought up, or as therapists, we're not trained to think like that. So I think there's a whole fascinating area of exploration in there. And I'm sure anyone listening who lives with an animal companion, such as a dog, will know exactly what I'm talking about, you know, that Mm. they, through living with the dog, they get to know the dog in themselves. (laughs) Mm.
0: Mm. It's interesting hearing you speak about that. There's um, some beautiful poetry by Walt Whitman, who talks about the child that adventures out into the world and becomes essentially everything that, that they interact with, including the buildings, including the swifts, including the farmyard, all of these things. And it's, it's such a, an astute observation of what we do. And it makes me lament the fact that so many of us don't have access to a wider, more-than-human, non-city-based experience, you know, because then what do you internalise? It becomes a lot more impoverished.
1: Exactly, and it's a really I'm really glad you've mentioned that because, you know, I talk about going to find a favourite spot and that may not be mm. accessible for some people and many children now are being brought up in situations where there's a lot more fear I think about children running around you know without parental supervision in the fields Uh, I certainly had a childhood growing up where I could roam around free range (laughs) Um, but I don't think that's possible any longer and children spend much more time at the screen don't they Mm -hmm. So I think there is uh, more of a withdrawal from nature than ever before because of our particular ways of life.
0: So speaking back to the interesting time of life, the chapter that you shared working with John Seed and Joanna Macy, I'm curious what your time with them did to kind of shape your perception of the world. What were some of the the most memorable aspects of, of working alongside them?
1: Each of them are very different characters. I first met John Seed when I was at a conference at Finthorn. It was a big eco psychology conference in I think it was ninety-nine or around that time, nineteen ninety-nine. And it was very exciting because I was quite fresh in the field and a lot of people there were figures that I knew from reading, and there they all were giving talks. Jane Goodall was one of the keynote speakers. Oh, wow which was fantastic. Uh, We were all in the Universal Hall. Anyway, John was running a workshop and I became, and it went, ran, it was like a sort of pre-conference workshop for about three or four days. And I just loved his style because not only does he, he's very experiential, so his workshops often turn into great lovings where everyone falls (laughs) in love with each other um, and shares at a really deep level and shares their grief and their love for the non-human world. And he tells lots of stories, uh, but A really fun thing is that he's got all these songs that he sings. So, you know, he'll Mm -hmm. give a a wonderful piece on reflection on our relationship with the earth, and then he'll pick up his guitar and sing a very potent song with words, you know, totally relevant for the workshop. And then, you know, he's continued always his work as an activist in different parts of the world. So it really, really inspired me to have someone who was so paying attention to our relationships with each other and our relationships with the earth whilst at the same time being a full-on activist. And I think Joanna, I went on one week residentials with her and then at some point I was one of the co-facilitators. She's a pretty formidable taskmaster, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Very focused works with large groups and incredibly creative so really well designed really well structured workshops engaging our feelings and then there would always be a slot in the mornings for what she would call brain food so she would give a little talk about different aspects of the situation on earth um, and tell stories about her work as an activist but also other people's work Um, she very much valued the intelligence in the group so in the evenings different people would present their work to the group Uh, that was very inspiring and in the afternoon she also really valued the artistic imagination so we would have poetry workshops and art workshops Mm. and I tell you the energy released in those weeks uh, the laughter and the just the sheer intensity of it. I mean, it was so inspiring. Mm. And also the way in which she would design particular exercises. There was one that sticks in my mind as being, uh, well, so many of them were so creative um, and moving. But there was one where she got us to imagine we were future beings and we were going to visit the now desolate nuclear plants that had all been decommissioned. But we were going to visit them a bit like people might go and visit, I don't know, the gas chambers in, you know, the concentration oh, wow. camps in Germany. Mm-hmm. We would go to visit them as a major spiritual teaching. So exercises like that.
0: <laughs> that's profound. I mean, that's going to elicit some really strong responses, I would imagine, from the people going through that. Yeah. So then one of, the, one of the hardest challenges that we face in our different lives is is clearly coming to terms with and finding alternatives for our current capitalist systems as well, because it's very difficult. And I imagine this is a theme that probably shows up quite a lot in your private practice. Um, It's quite difficult as individuals holding this grief and anger and all of the other feelings that arise. And then also thinking, well, yes, but what can I do? I've got to put food on the table and look after my dependence or whatever it might be so I wonder from your perspective what you feel eco-psychology holds within it to help us begin to address what we might do to change the systems that no longer serve us and that's kind of a particularly broad question because I don't know which direction you'd like to take us in but what are your thoughts around that how we might use eco-psychology to help us address and perhaps change the capitalist systems that we're living within? I think
1: it's such a difficult question. Um, You know, in a sense, it's the million dollar question, isn't it, that we're all struggling Mm -hmm. with today. And um, it's so difficult to change the economic system that we're all caught in. Um, and I'm not an economist, obviously, um, <laughs> although Helena Norberg-Hodge is, uh, and she—that that is one of the main things she's addressed. So I have hung out with people who think a lot about these issues, and her take on it is very much about localising the economy, uh, which we're seeing much more of these days with COVID, I think, from a more psychological point of view. I think there are two things, main threads I'd like to um, bring. One is that I think people get themselves into a dreadful twist about living the way we do, how we're all embedded in a very destructive way of going about things. People feel a huge amount of guilt. Um, People also feel this cognitive dissonance that, that actually their values lead them to want to live in one way Um, but what they find in their daily lives is that they're actually just part of the horrible violent system Mm. and it makes everyone including me I think who's aware of this feel pretty dreadful about ourselves we go to the shop you know it's hard to to live plastic free it's impossible actually to live completely plastic free we can we can do our best and it's important to try there's so many ways in which we can make small changes and I think even though that's not going to change the world um, nevertheless I still think it's worth it because it helps how we feel about ourselves mm. and actually if everybody did it it would change it <laughs> Mm. So I uh, and and what I see is that there are there are changes happening in consumer habits at the moment. So more and more people are becoming aware and are demanding firms to change and and companies are discovering that actually people there is a demand and therefore it's worth them changing. But of course it's not just about again about the practical changes it's also about process it's about how we work together so for example addressing social issues within companies around hierarchies around um i was just listening to a really interesting radio 4 documentary about companies experimenting with really radical ways of changing the hierarchical system of a company Mm. it's also about addressing all the what i would call the isms so how how do men and women work together? How do men become more aware of their sexism and misogyny? How do uh, white people and people of colour work together? Are white people really going to take responsibility for their own racism? Otherwise, we'll never build a social movement, a social and ecological movement, and we see this over and over again, don't we? Mm. So on a sort of in a sense, a more direct answer to your question about the capitalist system changing. That we must, in a sense, start with square one, which is that we cannot go on treating the web of life in the way that we are doing, because we will not have a future. Mm. Therefore, every decision we make, on every level, must take into account the greater whole and the impact that we have on it. We must think of what the Native Americans call, or some tribes call, thinking seven generations. We must think of seven generations ahead and the impact of everything we do on our children in seven generations' time. What world are we leaving for them? I think if we can address those questions, in every single organisation, that's a big if, <laughs> mm. <laughs> then we might begin to turn things around. And I mean, I do actually think that is beginning to happen. It's not happening quickly enough. There's not nearly enough change in relation to the size of the problem. But it is happening and it is speeding up, is what I see. So I think there is hope there.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it's. it seems as though we're starting to see it quite a rapid groundswell of interest in themes from everything from nature connectedness and the therapeutic use of psychedelics to self-sufficiency and gardening. And I wonder what your hopes and fears are for this moment looking forward.
1: My fear is that um, we're going to keep going down the route of further polarisation, which we're seeing so clearly, and hatred of the other particularly. Um, I find it really distressing. I find it really distressing watching the Irish conflict start up again, for example. And uh, I've certainly noticed over the past few years with Trump in power uh, how difficult it is, actually, not to hate. I've felt really caught in that. And it's really poisonous stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have to work, I feel I have to work really hard not to hate certain people and really it's about hating the opinions that they hold have to work really hard to build bridges uh, to really understand where the other is coming from and i think we've done quite a lot in our sort of global community you know there are factions of the global community that are really questioning that and really trying to understand the half of America that voted for Trump. We need to understand them and not just slag them off. Mm. And the same with the Brexit divide here and even with the, the COVID, the divides that have arisen within COVID, who's being vaccinated and who isn't and why. And don't hate the other person for their choices, please. So I think building bridges is in- incredibly important. My fear is the, that we'll go further into polarisation and hatred. And my hope is that we can just build as many bridges as possible to really work on putting ourselves in the shoes of the other in a deep way, really trying to understand where they're coming from and to awaken to the, to the sacredness of all, really.
0: Mm. And so building on that seed of hope, what vision of the future are you holding?
1: I think, again, this is a very interesting question because I, I find it very confusing. As an optimist, I don't believe in going around holding a gloomy vision of the future. With my rational hat on, I feel realistically we've got a lot further down to go. So I feel that we are seeing some very turbulent times ahead. But my hope in there is that we can build a strong enough community, both in terms of a human community, but also a non-human community, building bridges with uh, the rest of nature, Mm. that we know that we can build lifeboats to live through those times. How do we prepare for those times? I'm a believer also in things, very unexpected things happening. Mm. So taking my rational hat off, which I like to do a lot, (laughs) um, I would say that it's perfectly possible. You know, things are hotting up, things are speeding up. When things get really tight and we're really against the edge, it's quite possible that something will pop out or a range of things will pop out that we cannot dream about at the moment. Mm. You know, so in a sense, my vision of the future is is kind of like a blank canvas because I think there's a whole lot of stuff that may happen that I have no idea about at the moment. So in a sense, I'm holding out for that. I'm, I'm praying that through our collective genius that things will pop out that we can't dream about now and that somehow we'll find a way through, a kind of miraculous way through <laughs>
0: And I think when we look back through history, there there are so many examples of this happening. But of course, for the scene to be set in order for these things to arise at the the last minute or the right moment, it does require a lot of the work that you've just detailed, you know, the the psychological work of how do we turn inwards and, and think more deeply about our relationship to the more than human world, to the ways in which we consume, to one another, to the people that we perhaps despise through a lack of alignment on values or opinions. And so I guess... If we're thinking about resources that people can turn to, what I'd like to ask now is what book has most captivated your imagination in recent times and why?
1: Well, I, when I started uh, this interview, I talked about reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections um, when I was a teenager. So in terms of what book has most captivated my imagination and why, I think I explained a bit earlier how it was so full of many ideas. And I think it's still really worth, that's a book really worth reading today. Mm -hmm. So that's probably had the biggest impact on my life, that book. But I would say more recently, there's a wonderful anthology um, called Eco-Psychology, Restoring the Earth, Healing the Mind. And it's really the first book of its kind to come out that established the field of e It was published in 96, and it's full of writers who then went on to be pioneers in the field to write their own books, people like David Abram, Joanna Macy, um, cellist Glenn Dinning. It covers such a wide range of topics, so ecofeminism, the wilderness effect environmental despair there's a chapter on psychology and whiteness by carl anthony and still that issue within ecopsychology uh, remains something to be very importantly unpacked and um, brought in because it remains a very white field uh, there's a chapter on jungian psychology on technology mm-hmm. on nature and madness and <laughs> so we go on so i think it's still um, a book worthwhile reading even though there's many more books that have come out since
0: I'm going to put that on my list. And so then, finally, to wrap up, I'd like to ask what question you want people to dwell with at this moment and perhaps one thing that they can do to help move in a more positive direction.
1: Well, we started by talking about meaning. And I talked a bit about my worldview. And I think most people long to find meaning. And I think most people find meaning through feeling that they are of service to either their local community or to the wider world and or, you know, as well as to their family. So I would ask, what are your gifts to offer at this time of world crisis? What are your gifts and how can you make a difference? What do you love doing the most and how can you use this to be of help to the world at the moment? It must be something that you love doing, otherwise you'll burn out.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit Natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalina High. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.